What does it take to become an elite 40k player? How do the top competitors overcome bad dice? The Competitive 40k Network presents Art of War Unbroken. Insight into the game plans of the top players on the planet with your hosts, Blake Law and the Art of War Coaches. Hello and welcome to Art of War Unbroken. Champions may lose, but their spirits remain unbroken. I'm your host, Blake Law, and this is episode 7 of the podcast. We're glad you're able to join us today. They say we learn the most from our losses, and that's what we aim to do with this podcast. We aim to interview top players who have lost one or two games in an event and just didn't quite make it to the top. We're going to break down their mistakes. We're going to look at what they did. We're going to look at their list. We're going to analyze everything about that event and see where everything went wrong for them. How often have you blamed the loss on bad dice or just bad circumstances? This is what this podcast aims to debunk, is that exact thing. This episode, we're going to be talking about the aftermath of the Atlantic City Open. Dice have been rolled, games are done, drinks have been drunk, Brad has vanquished all of his foes. This is part one of the podcast. Yeah, there he is. This is part one of the podcast. We're going to analyze the game in this episode. We're going to talk about the mistakes that our our guest thinks that he made. We're going to talk about the secondaries he took. We're going to talk about his target priority. We're going to talk about everything he did during that game and just kind of the flow of the game in general. My co-host today, as always, is commonly referred to as the Uncle Rico of 40K. He's the Fire T-Rex because he vanquishes Fire Raptors on a regular basis. He's a master of the Death Onion. He is a nine-time member of Team USA. He has multiple Adepticon top finishes, three top eight LVO finishes, he is the current champion of the Armed Forces GT. He is the Atlantic City Open champion of 2021, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Brad Chester. Hooray. I was only one Adepticon. Quit selling me short on that one. <laughs> I think I sold you short on six episodes on that one. I, I'm, I'm going to go back and just give you six times then. Next time I'm giving, I'm naming yes. them all off. I'm going to rattle every one of them off for you. Love everything about that. Brad, I think we're going to play double soon as a team unbroken, and I'm going to buy you a baby Bjorn. And you're going to strap it to your chest and just carry me the entire event. I'm so ready. Let's rock this out. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm light. In, you can do it. I hit the gym. I'm ready to go. Let's do this. <laughs> Our guest today is the 2019 ITC third place overall finisher. He is the best in faction for Marines that same year in 2019. He won the Dallas Open this year in 2021. And he won the Iron Halo in 2020. Ladies and gentlemen, John, imagine all the Xenos winning. John, tell us about the last time you lost a game. Tell us about this list first. Come on, tell us uh, tell us about what you were playing first. I hate that we have to bring up the loss. It was like one time. Lost like one game. That's the ever. whole point of the podcast, my man. That's we what learn from our losses and we get better. We rise from the ashes like the phoenix. We learn from our mistakes and become better players. All right, well, let's start it off then. I am, or I was, playing Ultramarines at the Atlantic City Open event. I was running uh, my classic Ultramarine Battalion, and uh, this list uh, was uh, kind of a little bit of a meme. I like to call it the Ultra Memes, and it started off with uh, basically six walkers in a battalion. Uh, quite simply, I maxed out my elite slots with two Invictor Warsuits, two uh, Contemptors of Volkites, and two Redemptor Dreadnoughts. I then filled out my bat with uh, a Chapter Master on foot and Gravis Armor, a Primaris Librarian, and a Primaris uh, Tech Marine Master of the Forge. Then uh, just two units of five Intercessors, a unit of five Incursors, and then uh, a unit of Servitors, two units of Suppressors, and two Landspeeder Storms. There's basically two of everything that I wanted to take in this list. And uh, it turned into a uh, very good shooting army with some knee deployment tricks, a lot of other options, 
decent durability, and a surprising amount of melee punch. Well, tell me about the concept. Like, what were you, what are we trying to do with that particular list? Sounds like a lot of good stuff, but like, what are you, what were you aiming at? What was the counter for it? Like, what was the basically the general game plan for this list? So the reason I was playing this is because I was playing Melee Marines right around the time the Drukhari Codex came out. And I think I lost like my first eight practice games against Drukhari. And uh, a man can only take so much. And it turns out eight was the number for me. Uh, after that, I just abandoned Melee Marines and I decided that I was going to be shooting Marines and uh, Melee was going to be my committee. And uh, we were trying to figure out, we, we, were, we were well aware that Drukhari is the best army in the game at the time. So we weren't trying to figure out something that dumps Drukhari every time. We decided to lower our bar to beat Drukhari 50% of the time. And with that in mind, I built an Ultramarine list that if it went first, I was very confident would rain down the Wrath of Gulliman on any Drukhari player it faced with uh, redeploys and forward deploys and uh, a ton of shooting that's really well tailored to kill raiders and infantry. Um, I built a list that was designed to, if it went first, it would beat Drukhari every single time. And with that in mind, I would have a 50% win rate in Drukhari. And then if I could just win some of the time going second, I would have a better than 50% chance of beating any Drukhari player I faced. And uh, as a Marine player, um, I was pretty confident in everything else. I uh, really enjoyed my Marines uh, for, you know, 8th and ninth edition. So I was feeling like if I could build a list just specifically to beat Drukhari, I would try to outplay everyone else. And uh, that would be my path to victory. And uh, as I got practice with it, I really, I, I went second uh, more than first with the list. So I promised it's not just to go first win list. But uh, I got a lot of reps in going second, and uh, most of my practice games, I would request to go second so that I could kind of work on that part. But I figured going first was easy. Uh, Ultramarines have a really cool stratagem that lets them uh, redeploy units. So I had no qualms about like deploying Invictor Warsuits on the line, deploying Dreadnoughts on the line, or if I you know deploy Dreadnoughts in the very back and I go first, I'll just redeploy and you know put them on the line. So I practiced a lot going second, but it was built to just go first and remove any Drukhari player I played against. What did you see as kind of... Uh as like the problem going into the list? What, what were like some errors that you saw going into it? Like, this is going to be a problem for the list to face. So, I mean, one of the biggest things is that it is vehicle heavy. And uh, therefore, you know, a ton of ruins is always going to be an issue. Um, anyone that can kill Dreadnoughts very quickly. So I think of like, you know, Sisters of Battle, like Retributors with Multi-Meltas, um, any kind of really harsh anti-tank with long range and like high strength that where the minus one damage isn't going to be enough. Um, I always worry about that. And then... Uh, you know, any any board that is so full of line of sight blocking terrain that I can't do anything or shoot anything, that's going to be a problem. I probably wouldn't play this on a WTC style terrain where none of the ruins have windows in them. I really like ruins that have windows. But, you know, normally before you go to an event, you kind of have an idea what the terrain's going to be like. And I, I made sure, you know, I knew what I was walking into anytime I brought this to a tournament. What kind of secondaries are you looking for and your general game plan for victory? So this list is uh, really good at um, Oath of Moment. Again, I, I built the list to go first and win. So once I kind of established that that was where I was, I put the rest of my effort into going second and still winning. So Oath of Moment is a great secondary for going second. I'll take Oath of Moment or grind them down in every single game because anytime you go second with those secondaries, you're going to get a great score on it. So I would just, uh, you know, very simply, uh, I would take a go second secondary like Oath or Grind. Uh, I would normally take Domination and occasionally I would take um, Scramblers. Or, or, I'm sorry, and occasionally I'd take Engage in All Fronts. Because I had redeploying, you know, redeploying units with the, the incursors, and I had land speeder storms and suppressors, so I had some fast stuff to go get it, get uh, into the quarters. And then I would almost always take either raise the banners or uh, deploy scramblers. Um, I really like taking raise the banners because um, the army is actually much better in melee than most people anticipate. 
Um, it doesn't. It has no melee units, but it does the job of melee by committee really, really well. So I wanted to incentivize people to come to me. So uh, against Drukari, I would very frequently take Raise the Banners. And everyone would be like, oh, you can't take Raise the Banners against Drukari. They'll just come knock you off. But every time I took it, I got at least a 10 on it. Because anytime Drukari came close to me, I murdered them. Uh, the list was I mean, very tailored. Uh, a Redemptive Drukari. Dreadnought isn't exactly not a hand to hand unit, though. Yeah, <laughs> that everyone, guy. Punch looks straight like 14, uh, that's like a dragon punch, man. It's like you have to use the circle, circle, X start button. That thing hits hard. He's actually strength 16. My bad. I, I don't want to <laughs> sell him short. And, yeah, then John, you, uh, and then three plus D3 damage is uh, is nothing to shake a stick at. He literally takes a character and soccer tosses him into a dumpster. John, can you uh, can you tell us, for some of the players out there, what you mean by uh, melee by committee? Yeah, absolutely. So melee by committee is basically the concept that I don't have one unit that's going to go dumpster people in melee, such as like a nine repentia unit. Instead, I have a little bit of melee capability on every squad. So when it comes down to it, um, I am uh, ultimate successors. So I have master artisans and whirlwind of rage. And what that means is that I bas- basically take the number of hits you get from a space marine unit hitting on threes and then multiply it by about 125%. So, you know, if you're going to hit any time you roll six dice, you normally get four hits with Space Marines. Well, if you get four hits and one of them was a six, which out of six attacks, probably one will be, you now get five hits. So it's a hundred, it's a, you know, it's a 25% increase. And uh, I have a ton of rerolls in the list. I have reroll ones to hit. I very often have reroll ones to wound if I use Wisdom of the Ancients. Um, and uh, I have a once again aura of plus one attack. That's a relic on a librarian. Um, be be honest, just, Wisdom of the Ancients happens all the time. I use Wisdom of the Ancients about four turns out of five a game. I usually don't use it on turn five because it's not necessary by then. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I, I use Wisdom of the Ancients a lot. So it's it just, you start taking Space Marines. Uh, so like you take an, an Intercessor Squad, and most people know what an Intercessor Squad does in combat. It's either a punchy or a shooty one. And if it's a shooty one, they're like, oh, whatever, it's, it doesn't have any combat buffs. But you take an Intercessor Squad, and you pop that once a game attack buff, and suddenly then it puts up 22 attacks. And if it's hitting on threes, re-rolling ones, because there is a, uh, a captain nearby, it's going to get about 24 hits with 22 attacks. And that's if you can, if you accidentally tag five intercessors with a witch squad, it's going to be about 24 hits wounding on threes, rolling ones. And suddenly that will pick up about 10 witches in one go. And people don't expect that. And every unit just punches a little above its weight class. Uh, the captain, you know, the characters, they do the same thing. Uh, exploding sixes and just, you know, re-rolling one extra dice uh, you take it, the the captain. He's just a captain with a power sword. You don't think of that as scary. He doesn't have a combat relic. But uh, again, you know, you look at that guy. He's about six attacks on the charge. So he's probably going to get about seven hits because he's going to hit five out of six. One of those will be a six and I'll reroll a miss and it'll probably be a hit because weapon skill too. And it's just very, very easy for him to go into combat and get seven hits on someone. And no one expects that from an unbuffed captain who doesn't have a relic they don't expect him to average basically kill a dead intercessor, a intercessor squad by himself. You know, people expect like a teeth of terror captain or like a relic cannonist to do that. This guy's just an unbuffed captain and he just hits a little harder than you think. So how are you taking away? Uh, you said you did banners very well. Do you have rights of war on which one of your models and kind of what's the spacing on that? What's your general, where is everything kind of? Yeah, so the army normally operates as a castle where uh, I have three characters, the librarian, the tech marine, and the captain. And those characters all sit in the absolute middle of the four dreadnoughts. And I have rights of war on um, 
I want to say it's on the tech marine. So um, it's a, he because he's always babysitting the dreads. So he makes the dreads obsec. They have big bases. They punch in combat. It's hard to get on an objective without touching me. If you do, I punch harder than you think in combat. And uh, the army just kind of bowling balls around slowly with the dreadnought ball and um, blowing everything in line of sight out of the water. And I usually try to put that ball in the middle of two objectives so that it's kind of, you know, the once, you know, two dreadnoughts are on one, two dreadnoughts are on the other characters and like a squad or two are in the middle. And so just obsec on both objectives, kill everything in line of sight. And then I have a bunch of fast units like, you know, suppressors and um, storms and invictors who are trying to play the edges and will, you know, go contest enemy objectives, you know, go make charges on the other side of the board. Uh, they'll just kind of, you know, skirmish around the table. And uh, and that little, you know, that little castle is just going to rove right around the center and try to get me Oath of Moment and decent primary. Um, the goal with the list is to basically lock down two objectives and just rack out primary points consistently. If I go first, um, because I have the forward deploy, a lot of my units suddenly end up deployed on the line. And Invictors are literally, you know, and going into my opponent's deployments on turn one. So it's very easy for me to just leave one or two things on every objective and apply so much pressure that people don't get, get to them in time. And I just rack up immediate primaries. And if I go second, um, I just redeploy into a safe spot where I don't take much damage. And then the, the, the ball gets its buffs up and starts walking out. And I just try to get a couple tens on primary. And by the end of the game, I've usually shot enough people off and I'll, I'll save a lane speed or a storm or two. And I'll just jump out and get a 15 right at the end to get a very good primary. And uh, because I'm Space Marines, I don't give up any secondaries. Like It's very hard to score secondaries against me. Um, and then uh, I normally get good secondaries. You know, I take Oath of Moment. Uh, I take Raise the Banners. I just get good points on that. And uh, I'll take Domination. I'll just, you know, throw a land speeder onto an objective and shoot everything else off of it. And, you know, suddenly I get Domination. Um, and that that's enough to get a solid score on all my secondaries, get a very high primary, and murder my opponent while not giving them anything easy at all. And normally that leads to a, a game that's about 80-60 almost every time. Before well, we go too far down the rabbit hole on the game and everything, John, you want to tell us a little bit about the event for people who may not know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Atlantic City Open was a fantastic event. It was, uh, it was very large. I think it was 256 people on the dot. And uh, it was the first um, frontline gaming event that we've had in, uh, in uh, quite a while. So um, it started out with a, a six-day or a six-game um, Friday and Saturday. And uh, then it cut to a top eight. So, um, uh, you know, using the standard frontline gaming train, if you've been to like SoCal or Elvio or the Bay Area Open, uh, similar train to that, you know, there's plenty of pictures floating around online um, of the event. But um, very large event and uh, a very diverse meta there. But it was using the old FAQ and it was using no Atomic and it was using uh, no Sisters of Battle as well. So it was, it was kind of like the, the mid-April meta because that's when the, the rules cutoff was. Um, or I guess the, the mid-May meta, I'm sorry. Um, so it wasn't quite using the new Atomic yet, but uh, still, you know, plenty of plenty of Drukari there for everyone to, to cut their teeth on. What was the situation with uh, Drukari where they had to adjust list after they were submitted? What was going on with that? Um, my understanding of what happened was that... Um, <laughs> Would you like me to tell you? I'll tell you exactly what happened. <laughs> uh, I could tell you too, because uh, I helped prompt that change because they were doing it wrong. Um, basically there's a, an obscure line of text that, uh, was not read by, uh, some of the, the players and TOs about, um, uh, you needed to have a warlord to get a faction specific relic. Um, that's actually in the Drukhari codex. You can't take a cult of strife, uh, relic if you don't have a cult of strife warlord, even if you use a stratum to buy any more, it calls out specific exceptions. And it looks like some players missed that. And then, uh, I don't know if the TOs initially noticed, uh, either, 
but uh, it was actually brought to their attention, and they uh, they let some Drukari players change their relics. I don't think they changed anything else, but you know what? Um, I think uh, I think that's you know fairly reasonable because uh, the judges did say that it was allowed, and then uh, it was you know some some screenshots came forward, and it wasn't allowed. Well, the so, one that uh, they did that wasn't made. the one that they did with mine actually. They just just they said that you couldn't take a warlord trade or a relic uh, that wasn't strife if you chose strife as your warlord. <clears throat> So yeah, that, that's that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. You cannot. So it, it wasn't related to the FAQs per se. It was more of a technicality kind of issue on it. Yeah, I, I think it really was that the Drukari Codex has different wording on everything than any other codex, which is frustrating. But um, it looks like some people just didn't quite uh, catch all the minutia. So when lists came live, they're like, oh, you can't do that. So I, I think it was just, you know, some relics changed. But uh, it's always better to catch that stuff before the event rather than during. So I'm glad it was brought up before as opposed to after. Yeah, this is a game of a million rules, you know, you, and with that many people missing it, you know, you gotta, gotta clarify. So that's great. I'm glad they did. Mm-hmm. John, why don't you tell us a little bit about, so what did you lose to and what round was it and kind of what, how, how did it all play out? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, after I've described the, uh, kind of the, the genesis of the list and what I was thinking, um, to give a quick, uh, stamp on the, the event as a whole, um, I played all six games, I finished five and one, my round four, uh, loss was to uh, Jonas Beardsley, a Drukari player. And I believe the mission was um, Surround and Destroy. It was a Dawn of War, a Dawn of War with six objectives. Um, for me, for the weekend as a whole, um, I actually played five of my six games against Drukari. Um, so, you know, that was that was fun. <laughs> um, but the army was built to play against Drukari, and I was able to go four and one against them. Um, but the, uh, the fun little twist and uh, a moment of hubris uh, after I, you know, told you that the list was designed to go first, was that I actually went second all six games. So after designing a list to go first and kill Drukari, I did end up going second all six games uh, for the weekend, which was uh, very amusing. Uh, not at the time, of course. At the time, I was very sad. But um, in hindsight, it's kind of funny that I built this list to, like, be designed to go first and wreck Drukari. Because if it goes first, it does it does do a lot of damage to uh, the Raider archetype. Um but um, I went second all six games, and the game that I lost was, uh, again, to Jonas Beardsley, Dawn of War. Uh, this was um, uh, in the top row of tables, because we were both 3-0 at the time. And uh, the, the terrain that was being used in like the top two rows, I think, was uh, Frontline Gaming's Orc City terrain. So um, uh, where some of, the, some of the tables at the event were a little bit light on terrain, uh, the top tables were pretty good, actually. Uh, there were about six ruins on the table. So to give a kind of a brief rundown of how the game went, um, he, uh, he went first on Dawn of War. He actually, uh, before the game, he kind of looked at me and he's like, I think I have to go first to win. So he actually deployed relatively aggressive. Um, he of course was hiding, you know, raiders behind line of sight, but there, there were definitely some raiders that could be seen turn one where if I had gone first, I probably would have killed like, mm, I think I probably would kill like three or four raiders. Maybe probably F4 is pretty safe. Um, and then I would have charged another one to try to get a fifth. Um, so he, he definitely had, um, you know, he had them deployed where I could see them. Um, but um, when he went first, he, uh, I, of course, redeployed very far back. And he um, he was able to kind of push up behind some ruins, get some uh, early board positioning, and, uh, you know, be, be in a good spot where um, he could uh, hide out of line of sight relatively um, on two of the objectives to kind of get that consistent 10. And um, my first turn, not much happened. I think he, um, he popped out a boat, tried to get some shooting. Um, I blew it out of the water. And um, I, uh, I, I 
plinked some shots off of a Ravager with a couple guns. Uh, but I, I think I killed, I think I killed two boats right uh, turn one because he, he pushed one with Rax aggressively. So I killed that, killed most of the Rax inside as well, and then uh, kind of worked my way down. Um, from there, he made a big push onto my uh, my left flank, and I think his game plan was that he was going to sit on his two objectives and he was going to push hard to knock me off of one of mine and uh, limit my primary. And uh, this worked relatively well for him. Uh, he made a good push that turn with his jet bikes and some uh, uh, some other units and like the witches. And a succubus. Unfortunately for me, I think my shooting back didn't quite have the turn I needed. Where his reaver jet bike squad uh, lived, I, I managed to wipe out like a witch squad, a raider, uh, the contents of the raider, and um, a succubus and some racks. But uh, I left some stuff alive that I really wanted to um, uh, to kill. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, from there, uh, him having those resources alive meant that they came into my castle and move blocked me for a turn, where that really put me behind pace for the game. And uh, unfortunately, because I left, you know, one thing alive, uh, he actually got a 15 on primary that turn. And when the player going first gets a 15, it's a really big deal because when he's getting the consistent 10s, uh, I was hoping that he was going to get like 10, 10, 10. And then by the end of it, I would be able to, you know, poke my guns through windows and like knock him to a five. But when he got that 15, it suddenly became he could get a 40 or 45 without having to do much. And then as long as he limited my primary, it'd be really hard for me to catch him. So that's kind of what happened was I did get a 15 at the end, but um, he uh, uh, because he got that 15 and then he kind of racked out some 10s, he basically was going to get a 45 and there wasn't much I could do to stop it. And looking at my game set, I was probably going to just get like a 30 where I was going to get five, five, maybe a 10 turn four, but, you know, maybe five or 10. And then I was going to get a 15 at the end going second. Um, and so I was trying to work on the secondaries to catch him. Unfortunately, um, his secondaries and mine were very even. Um, I think he actually had even had a slight lead there. So at the end of my turn three, uh, I kind of realized that I actually wasn't going to win the game, uh, which is obviously disappointing. I think, uh, you know, we'll we'll spend the rest of you know, the podcast talking about what I could have done better. But um, at that point, I was like, well, I, I better get revenge. So I just went, you know, guns blazing and uh, tried to kill as much of him as I could and get those points. Because, you know, at a bare minimum, I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to, you know, just give up and, you know, lose even more points, especially with, you know, uh, the uh the prospect of making a, a top 12 you know for a ghost round available at the time um uh, i was like all right well i just need to get as many points as i can so i, I closed it out decently um i think uh, my secondaries were all like solid but not great um i believe in this game i took oath of moment um which i i think i got an 11 on and then i took engage in all fronts which i think was a 10 and then i got um i took raise the banners which i think was like a nine um, do you remember what he took on the what secondaries he had in the game um, my recollection is that he took her to the prey, uh, which I thought was a very, well, I, eh, yeah, he took her to the prey, bring it down. And, um, I believe he also took raise the banners. And could you just, uh, it, could you tell our listeners what heard the prey is? I'm absolutely. Sure some people might not. Yeah. Heard the prey is, uh, is a dark elder secondary where at the end of a turn, the dark elder turn, you look at every table quarter that doesn't have an enemy model in it and they get two points for that. It's, so it's, it's bizarro engage. It's, it's bizarro engage. But it means that if I push into his his quarters and he kills me out of them, and then I send another unit in for engage, it means that he still gets his herd the prey. Um, I thought that that was actually a very risky secondary set, but uh, you know, kind of once he started deploying, and I realized that his game plan was go first. It made sense because if I go first, uh, I have stuff everywhere. But when I go second, um, uh, it ends up that um, I, I redeploy pretty far back, so I don't I don't push much into quarters. I just throw put like throwaway units like servitors and land speeder storms and suppressors 
which, um, you know, the, you can kill those easily. They're just there to get me my engage on friends points. So um, that, that turned out very well for him. He, he got a max on Herd the Prey. Uh, his bring it down, I think he got an eight on. I think uh, he killed, um, which uh, my list gives him max 12 and I have three dreadnoughts left again. So I think he got an eight on it. And then uh, his raise the banners, um, they were solid. I think uh, he raised two, uh, two banners in his deployment zone. Um, you know, and because I had to redeploy back, my plan is really to shoot people off objectives. I have to go first to knock people off objectives physically and put models there. So um, all of his secondaries worked really well going first. And uh, I think he got like a, an 11 or 12 on Raise the Banners, um, an 8 on uh, Herd the Prey. And then um, and then I believe he got a, like a 15. Or I'm sorry, 15 on Herd the Prey and like a, an 8 on Bring It Down. Um, and I think that put him at like a 92 or something. I, I don't have a BCP up in front of me, but uh, that sounds about right. That uh, I think he missed like uh, 8 or 9 points on, uh, on the secondaries in total. And he maxed his primary. That one turn of 15 uh, really... Uh, really was a, a kind of a nail in my coffin. Brad, do you have Jonas's list handy where you could read it off for us? It had Triple Patrol, the first one being Cabal of the Blackheart. He has Archon, Ancient Evil, Husblade with Chin Blade, Splinter Genius, three units of Kabbalah Warriors, two units of Incubi in that detachment, two Ravagers, and five Raiders. And then he's got the Obligatory Cult of Strife Patrol with Double Succubus, Show Stealer, Dark Lotus Toxin, Razor Flails, Precision Blows, and then the Blood Dancer, actually, with the Trip Tech Whip going all in on those sixes. Then he's got two units of Witches, both with Grave Lotus, and the third unit of Incubi, and then he had a nine-man Reaver Jetbike squad. And then we had the Dark Technomancer, Drizar, Rax, and a unit of Mandrakes. Thank you, Brad. John, do you feel like this is something we ask pretty much everyone after after the list is read and all that? Do you feel like terrain at the event or like this game particularly played any role in the game for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, the terrain was, um, I mean, it, I, it plays a role as always. Um, with Dark Elder, you know, being the fast armor there, they can really take advantage of obscuring terrain. Um, this one had six ruins on it, which, um, was a little bit annoying. I think the biggest thing that made the difference actually in this game was the mission we played on. Um, Dawn of War is very hard to escape Dark Elder on, and uh, I have a lot of long-range guns. But actually, the biggest thing is that this was the really the only mission that I that I played this weekend where there were multiple objectives in the deployment zone just completely out of line of sight, just completely well, behind obscuring terrain. And the, and the mid and the midboard objectives were take were takeable in the ruins, correct? If I'm yeah, not mistaken, so, on that one. Yeah, that, that's correct. So there were two objectives in the center that were like smack dab in the middle of an obscuring ruin. It can kind of be held from either side. And then there were two in each deployment zone that were smack behind ruins where they could very easily be held. Um, and uh, I kind of looked at the terrain layout, layouts going into the event, and I knew that in most missions there would be multiple visible objectives. So um, this was definitely going in. I knew that round four is going to be the worst mission for me. Once they announced which which rounds were the missions, I looked at them. I started looking at the top tables. So the day before I looked at it, I was like, ooh, this is this is going to be a hard mission for me because this is the only one where my opponent can really get primary without me just shooting them off of it. Um, which now there's always going to be, you know, one or two objectives hidden. But this was one where there was a lot of objectives hidden. And that was what I was worried about. Was that uh, if there's, you know, like a potentially three vis objectives that they're on behind a wall, then I have to really be aggressive, get into them and uh, start shooting them away. Or at least that's uh, what I needed to do. Not actually what I did. 
so you saw like the multiple like six ruins on a table and there were six of six objectives so you're like oh man like they're definitely gonna be this, some yeah. obscure and ones. this literally, was literally the only a mission where you could take those objectives from behind those ruins though yeah there were six objectives and all six of them were under the six obscuring ruins i was like man like, like they had to be there so it's the anti-Daka Daka table is essentially what it comes the, the, This down was to. definitely the it was just the mi- mission. It was the mission itself. He got this this was the bad mission for you, for sure. Oh, yeah, man. this was I'll the worst it. mission for me. This was the one that I was most nervous about uh, going in. And uh it turns out Jonas is a, a very, very talented Dark Elder player. Um I, you know, it's one of those things where um I was kind of playing the odds where it's like, you know, there's a lot of matchups where I can just bully people directly forward. Dark Elder is a hard one to do it on, uh do it against, uh going second, that is. So um, this was definitely kind of, you know, the, the, the constellations aligned into uh, my hardest matchup. And I, I think in order to win that, uh, it is winnable, by the way. I, I don't think that this was an auto-loss game by any, any even, you know, stretch of the imagination. But uh, it definitely meant that I had to be on my, on my absolute best behavior as a player. Um, you know, I had to really be focused in not making mistakes. And um, I, I think I played pretty well, but uh, no one ever plays perfect, right? That's why we're on the show. John, what are what mistakes do you perceive? Like, without digging into it too deep, because we're going to do that in part two. I was say, whoa, whoa, whoa! Don't steal my thunder for part two. <laughs> whoa! I don't even know where you're going with this. This is how we can't leave you alone for a second. <laughs> well, so I think I think I, he can tell us what he thinks. You know, what he thinks he did wrong, and then we can dive into it in part two. Yeah. So, have you ever seen John not dive into it? You can't let him unleashed. Also, <laughs> uh, that's true. I Art of War unleashed. That'll be my podcast. Um, so I think, um, my, some of my biggest mistakes I think were, um, uh, I don't want to say under committing, but let's say not setting up a backup plan for math where, um, I had a, I had a, a turn to where, uh, I'm, I'm going to be honest, things that happened were not statistically average. However, dice are not, uh, are never the only, only reason to lose a game. Um, but, uh, I, I put a Volkite Dreadnought into a, uh, a squad of Reaver jet bikes, and I kind of wrote it off as dead, and I didn't try everything I could to get more units in line of sight. Um, so unfortunately, that uh, that Volkai Contemptor went into the Reaver jet bikes, and my opponent, uh, like an absolute boss, made um, 11 out of uh, 13 saves. Uh, he was just rolling five ups on me like a, like a monster. It was incredible, um, and that left the Reaver jet bike squad alive. Gave him uh, you know the 15 on primary, and let that Reaver jet bike squad uh, move block me. So on the one hand, that sucks, right? Like I was, I have a Volkite Dreadnought with full rerolls to hit, full rerolls to wound because this was my Seal of Oath target. Uh, Ultramarines have a very nifty relic where I pick a unit, I reroll all hits and wounds against it. And I picked Reaver Jet Bikes and um, I put a Volkite Contemptor into it. And that's normally something where I just point at it and it goes away and I just start moving down the line of targets. And that squad just straight up lived. Like no, he had no, he had no CP, so he had no rerolls, he had no minus one to hit. He just straight up tanked it like a boss. And I didn't really have much else that could shoot it. You know, he he pulled the, the like I think the two saves he failed. He um he just straight up pulled uh people out of line of sight. And I was like, oh, uh suddenly this there's seven Reaver jet bikes alive and um and nothing else in my army can shoot them. This is a huge problem. Um and then the same thing, uh, you know, I I I think I redeployed a little too conservatively because it made my firing lanes very hard to get. So um, I pushed out with enough guns to average dead things. But again, you know, trusting averages is a fool's errand. And um, because I was so conservative in my redeployment, I, um, I didn't get all the I didn't get enough guns to ensure kills. 
So same thing, you know, the, the same turn I shot a Ravager and uh, there's a wounded Ravager on an objective and uh, it's the only thing there. So I figure, okay, if I can kill this, I knock him off the objective and I, I'm good on points. And um, unfortunately, what ended up happening was this uh, this wounded Ravager went six for six on invulns against uh, my suppressors and my victors. And uh, that's obviously bad. And, you know, it's very, you know, in the moment, you know, you you shake your fist at the, the ceiling of the convention hall and be like, why dice? Why? But the reality is that I had guns that I didn't fire that turn because I deployed them a little too far back. And yes, it sucks that, you know, if you if you put six damage, two saves on a wounded Ravager, you probably kill it. But the other side of it is what could I have done to ensure that I, I could do better? And, you know, there's always better positioning, better movement to get more shots to guarantee these things. This dice happen and you, you need to be able to play around it. Perfect. And we'll, we'll dive into, I think, what you would do differently in part two. We'll kind of really get into it and, and see what you would have done. Um, I have a couple things here that the, they were requested by listeners, actually. One of them is when you're looking at a matchup, like we talked about how Dark Eldar is a bad matchup for you and how you adjusted. What do you consider when you go into looking at a bad matchup? So what I consider going into what I consider a bad matchup is um, I really, you know, every list is always a little bit different. I, I look at my opponent's threats and what I can do to mitigate them. Um, so against this list, I was looking at Ravagers and Dark Lances and how I could knock them out quickly so that my Dreadnoughts had a lot more, you know, free reign across the table. Um, and uh, I also, uh, I pay a lot of attention to how I'm going to score my points and how my opponent's going to score their points. Um, you know, in this game... Um, you know, even though I, I had one bad turn of shooting, I still did a good job of killing my opponent's units. Uh, but unfortunately, um, I uh, didn't do as well on the scoring points part, and I think that was my main failing. Um, was really, you know, focusing on my primary because uh, I, I let him, uh, you know, kind of torpedo my primary a little too easily. I think. Awesome, yeah. And when you and the other thing that people had asked about, uh, especially with review being an art of war coach, is. When you sit down and you look at a game and you think back on your tournament, what are things in particular that you focus on to kind of improve your game? Like, what do you reminisce on to move forward? So, honestly, I uh, after a game, I pretty much look at every... I do a couple things. One of the things I do is I look at basically every point that I didn't get that I normally do get, and I look at what could I have done better. So, in this game, I got a 30 on primary, and that was my, my immediate, like, let me look at this and see what I could have done better because 30 is the lowest primary I've, I think I've ever gotten with this army. Um, so I was like, okay, I, need, I can do better than 30. Um, and, you know, going second against Dark Elders obviously can be hard, but what I need to do then is I need to, you know, block off objectives. I need to put multiple bodies on. I need to put a lot of obsec and make it tough. You know, if I just put an intercessor squad on objective and he kills it, you know, that that's not that surprising, right? Like you expect Dark Elder to pick up an intercessor squad. So, you know, if I'm going to do that, I needed to, I needed to put more things on objectives is and and you know that's kind of my response to my primaries lower than i wanted or i look at you know my secondaries and all three of my secondaries were solid you know 11 you know 9 10 and 11 none of those are bad it's just that the kind of the overall of you know only getting 30 on primary what or on secondary was like eh you know i could have done a little bit better there um so, so I, you I kind of know what my, you yeah i start looking at like what secondaries you know what could i have done to get more points on the secondaries so, like, how could I have defended my banners better? How could I have raised more banners earlier? Uh, then I look at, you know, how could I have gotten more with the moment points? Uh, because I redeployed kind of far away from the center, I didn't get to hold the center one every turn. Um, so, you know, I just kind of look at, you know, I, I try to just look at what I scored and where the points weren't 
and where you know what I could have done to recover them. You get so you have you have a pretty you have a lot of reps in the list, and so you know this is what I normally do, and this is what I did. Then you kind of see where you went wrong. That, that's smart. I think that's awesome. Yeah, exactly. Well, John, thanks for joining us for part one. We're gonna really just go into it deep into part two. So, uh, for all the listeners out there, check us out on the Art of War, uh, theartofwar40k.com, and go and subscribe to the podcast. Listen to part two. We'll talk to John about his list, what he plans to change. We'll talk about kind of what he thinks he could do different to uh, overcome some of the mistakes he perceived, and uh, we'll really just get into it. Um, before we close the episode, though, we are gonna go ahead and do our uh, our FAQ. Or not FAQ, sorry, our Q&A. I have FAQ on the brain. Um, we're going to do our Q&A. As one of the added perks of being a War Room member with the Art of War, we actually put forward the episode before we launch it, and we let you ask questions for the guest. So we have a couple questions here for you, John. The first one comes from Luke Metz, and he already, you already answered some of this. He asked what secondaries you took and things like that. But one of the big ones he said is, what matchup did you fear the most and why? And I think we kind of already gotten to that one too with the dark eldar but anything else you want yeah. to add to that uh, it's 100 percent dark eldar um i really like being in control uh this list is a really good control list it's very methodical it's very reliable it's very consistent because that is such weight of dice and rendery rules it does what it does very consistently um so i really am afraid of dark eldar the most because they're a very dynamic army and they're very fast um and you know sure enough i, I played them five times this weekend but uh every single time i play dark eldar i'm always like I'm always nervous going into it. I always like try to be as careful as possible because I have a lot of respect for what Dark Eldar can do to someone. Yeah. Um, Rob Edwards asks, do you feel the list is in its final form or are there still unexplored options? I actually think that my Ultramarine list is just about its final form. Um, uh, I definitely was confident in it with the, uh, the old points that that was the list and there was not a single point I wanted to change. However, uh, going forward, I, I do want to look at some of the other units that got cheaper, um, like Eliminators, and just see where they would theoretically fit into the list. But my gut instinct right now is that um, I'm, I'm still very happy with the units I have, and I don't think I want to change a thing. Awesome. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to say this guy's name. I apologize if you're listening to this. Um, it's Schnevar Degard Peterson. And he asks, this is kind of a joke question. He asks, what faction do you love facing and why is it Dark Eldar? I just, <laughs> that's pretty good. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, for Snivar, <laughs> I love, you know what? I actually, I do it. So Dark Eldar are what, are what scares me the most, but I actually really enjoy playing them because it's always a challenging game. And, uh, you know, I, I, I live for, you know, I live for, you know, playing 40K and, and it being a competition, you know, like I don't, I, there's a reason I didn't play Dark Eldar this tournament. You know, I, I, I found that there were too many games with Dark Eldar that weren't competitive, so I, I didn't enjoy them very much. Um, I, I love it when the games are tough and when they're they're you know they're challenging and each player is making great plays and doing what they can. So uh, and also you know what I love rooting for an underdog, which means I love rooting against the top dog. So Dark Eldar was you know the undisputed number one going into this tournament. Anytime I get to crack a shot at them, I am happy. Ride that bandwagon, baby. Get on the bandwagon. <laughs> I feel like I feel like Schnevar is going to be angry for his name. I apologize, bad. Uh, my my southern accent can't allow me to say it. I apologize. Uh, but then we have one more question here from Ben Taylor. He says, "How do you feel this list will evolve with the Admech Sisters and T five Orcs in the meta?" Oh man, um, Orcs. Uh, not enough to say. Uh, T five. I'm not scared of that. There's a ton of strength. Uh, five, six, seven. There's, I mean, obviously there's some four too, but enough strength five, six, and seven that I'm not worried about Orcs. Uh, we'll just kind of have to see what the rules are in battle. Determine things. 
Um, sisters and Admech, I actually feel fairly good into Sisters. Um, even though I'm scared of multi-multi retributors, this list actually had a ton of play into the older Sisters of Battle Codex. So um, I'm going to try to get some reps, reps into the new one, and uh, we'll see from there. Uh, the part two um, of that question, the Admech, uh, that, that's a challenging one, where I actually feel like this army does very well into Admech going first. Um, again, my firepower can be redeployed, and if I can hit them when they don't have all their defensive buffs up, um, I vomit weight of dice, and I would feel very comfortable cutting through a lot of Skitari and removing my opponent's board control, because that's what I like to do when I go first, is remove their mobile elements, remove their board control, and, you know, I'm kind of a, a slow-moving, very shooty, relatively punchy army, and if suddenly my opponent is also not that fast, it's like, oh, well, now we're doing the same thing, but I'm better at it. So I like removing, you know, mobile elements and, you know, board control elements uh, on turn one. And uh, and if I can do that, I feel like I'm in a good spot. Uh, I really want to get some practice into Admech, though. I actually, I've played against the new Admech Codex, but I haven't done it with my Ultramarines yet. So this would be, this is a, a matchup I really want to practice before I see it at a tournament. Awesome, John. Thanks for answering the questions for us. Um, join us for part two. We're going to go ahead and end the episode on that. Check out all the great things we have to offer on our website, theartofwar40k.com. We have coaching services. We have the the War Room on Facebook. We have the other podcasts, The Art of War and The Art of War Down Under, hosted by the great Adam Camilleri. Check those out. Go on there. Describe to us for part two. And as always, if you have any questions, concern, feedback, email me at blake at theartofwar40k.com. Thanks for listening. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War and the Art of War Down Under podcast on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com.